Hey there, I'm Eric, aka Revolver. And I'm Sean. And we're the Verta Guys. We're checking out the dark side of DC. We're here to recap and review Vertigo comics starting with the big three, Sandman, Hellblazer, and Preacher. Yeah, today we're looking at Hellblazer issues six and seven. Alright, so where we last left John Constantine, not a lot had been happening, right? Yeah, that's right. The last time we saw him, he was sort of a passive observer in a pretty bad Vietnam War pastiche comic story. Right, so he's been having some episodic adventures, including the kidnap of his niece Gemma by a Satanist. Yeah, which are sort of going to coalesce into an actual story arc over the next four issues or so. Right, every story that we've seen here has involved either the Resurrection Crusaders or the Damnation Army or both. Right. Except for maybe maybe not issue four. Yeah, four was waiting for the man. Four was the kidnapping. Three was the side story about Thatcherism. The Thatcher one didn't have any Damnation Army. Or Resurrection Crusaders in it. Yeah, but he's been running into these Resurrection Crusaders and these Damnation Army guys for a little while now, and he's been employing sort of standard Constantine problem-solving method. Right, which is to wait and see. (laughs) (laughs) He keeps making comments about how he will check it out real soon. (laughs) Yeah, his appearances at the pub are not impaired. Yeah, I just liked when he showed up in that Sandman issue and somebody mentions that the Sandman's coming and he's like, well, I guess I'd better look into it. Four days later, the Sandman walks into his house. <laughs> that was the conclusion, the beginning and the, and the end of his investigation. Exactly. Uh, but these, uh, these pieces are going to start to come together and we're going to see sort of an actual story blossom out of this stuff right about now. So we go into Hellblazer number six. Extreme Prejudice. Yeah, Extreme Prejudice, as usual for this period of the book, was written by Jamie Delano and drawn by John Ridgway. It also has a cover by Dave McKeon. Yeah, the cover depicts sort of a cross and an upside-down flaming cross crashing into one another with teeth-gritted Constantine in the middle. I think that's Constantine anyway. Yep, that would be my impression of it. So here we go on page one, and we'll see a couple of familiar faces. It's the British boys. We have seen these assholes before, generally messing with minority members of the London community and being pricks. Yeah, and being described by John Constantine as pond life. Yeah, he doesn't get along with them, and he's gotten the better of them on a couple of occasions. Yeah, that's right. So here we have some narration that's sort of third-person omniscient, describing basically how these guys have a real sense of community with each other. They're they're broke and bored. They're on the dole and they don't get paid until Friday. I like this line. No dole till Friday. No soccer till the weekend. Yeah, and we find out that on the weekends they're opposing soccer hooligans. Right, right. So right now they are gathered to burn down a shop run by a dark-skinned shopkeeper. I can't say exactly what his point of origin is. Yeah, unless he's the same Pakistani shopkeeper that we I, saw I wonder about that. in issue number one. 
But it does point out that on Saturdays, two of them fight for Arsenal and two for Chelsea. Yeah, and I took that narration to mean that they were aware of this conflict of interest, but perhaps not, as we'll see later. They're running away from this scene, and John takes note of them as he's walking on the street. And they take note of a character walking some ways away. He's a bald guy with his trench coat pulled all the way up. His collar popped up so they can't really see his face. And by means that I'm not really clear on, they have ascertained that this guy is gay. Well, okay, so the narration here mentions that he's cottaging, which is a term that basically means having sex in public, especially in public men's rooms. So he is going into a public men's room. Yeah, the impression is that he like made eye contact with them and then went into the men's room. So he was inviting them to follow. Which would not be a good move, because the British boys hate queers most of all, we are told, and they get on their steel-lined gloves and head into the bathroom to give him a kicking. Right, yeah, they're, they're just as homophobic as they are racist, and, and they wouldn't want anyone to think otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> right, but it doesn't work out well for them. Yeah, because on the next page we see that the guy they've followed in there is actually a demon. Yeah, and he's a specific demon. We're going to get his name in a couple of pages, but this is actually the first appearance of one of John's longest recurring foes. This is Nurgle. Yeah, and not only will they have several run-ins from here on out, they've also had run-ins in Constantine's past that have not yet been documented on panel. Right. There's a line here that we should point out as they get ready to go into the bathroom and start some shit that... Kenny pulls on his fighting glove and becomes Iron Fist the Avenger. That's sort of a name that he's given himself, which we'll come back in just a little bit. Yeah, so what's going on with the narration here is kind of funky. We're getting confusing shifts between what seems to be third-person omniscient and narration by Constantine himself, who is witnessing all of this. He doesn't witness Nurgle killing all the British boys, but he... Uh witnesses the immediate aftermath. Right, so in a rare application of instant karmic justice, Nurgle hits the British boys like a hurricane. Yeah, uh, and I, I have in my notes that he kills them, but I guess that's... Or, or does he does he kill them and revive them later, or does he just, yeah, like, knock them out? I, I think it's fair to say that they're dead at this point. Okay. We have Kenny remembering the time he put the canary in the Cuisinart. So... That's a very vivid image for the way that Nurgle is handling the British boys. And also just a reminder that they couldn't really do more to deserve it if they tried. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, they're not... uh, Let's say they have antisocial tendencies. Right. But there's blood all over the walls, and not only that, but the the toilets have been been torn to pieces. It looks like the the stall doors have been torn off their hinges. The the sink is, is broken open and gushing water. Nurgle completely destroyed this bathroom and everybody in it in a matter of only a few seconds. Yes, but somebody has more of a civic mindset. John is outside, psyching himself up to intervene. He doesn't realize who the British boys have gone after, and he's preparing to intervene on that person's behalf. But he gets an unpleasant surprise when he enters the public restroom. Right, yeah, he he says that the... The gay guy in there getting beaten up could be a friend of his, like Ray. Right, right. 
And again, it's just really confusing. Like, we have third-person omniscient narration and Constantine narration on the same page. And the Constantine narration is marked with pink editor boxes, which we previously saw holding third-person omniscient, I think, just a couple of pages ago. So it's it's really kind of hard to tell what's going on. Yeah, that's a fair assessment. Constantine bursts in to find the bathroom in ruins and blood spattered everywhere. Struth! Looks like a bloody Ralph Steadman drawing. <laughs> and the scene has been signed, Damnation Army. Right, written in blood on the ceiling. He notices what appears to be a tile out of place or a trap door that is not spattered in blood, indicating that it's been closed after the violence. Yeah, but he decides he's not going down there in his good coat. Right, Nurgle escapes via the sewer and John's having none of that. <laughs> yeah. And at this point I wrote I wrote down in my notes that I really hope that British boys aren't going to be like, you know, portrayed as the lesser of two evils in this issue. But I needn't have worried. <laughs> right. Constantine also notes, when he sees it signed Damnation Army, that those are the same bunch who kidnapped Gemma. That was a couple of issues ago. His niece was... Abducted and nearly killed by a member of the Damnation Army. Right, right. Seemingly an independent one, but one that's affiliated with them nonetheless. And so this Damnation Army stuff is is rapidly approaching the threshold at which John Constantine feels the need to actually do something about it. On the next page, we get the demon Nurgle sneaking away through the sewers. Yeah, and he makes quite an entrance here in front of his sort of assembled troops. He has some narration here where he sort of explains how he feeds on human corruption, how he cultivates corruption, anger, and despair in the human population through the use of carefully placed human agents provocateur. Right. He's basically fighting a guerrilla war against all humanity. Right. Meanwhile, John heads to a pub and calls up Tony, a reporter friend of his, to research the Damnation Army. Yeah, and he said, what's Fleet Street's word on it? Fleet Street is, at the time that this was written, an already dated term for the British news media. Ah, okay. He finds that there have been a lot of incidents, but actually that the government has been keeping it quiet, having their secret branches investigate. They suspect something to do with terrorism, but John thinks they're on the wrong track. This isn't anarchy, it's chaos. Yeah, that's a good line. One more thing I want to note on this page is a little subplot that happens in the art as John has ordered himself a large drink and the bartender points to a sign that says, We hate to give offense, so please don't ask for credit. <laughs> he asked her for credit. And she answered him, Nay. <laughs> um, yeah. Right, so after getting all the lowdown on Dumbledore's army from Tony, Constantine goes to visit Zed and finds her talking to some of the opposite kind of fanatics, and finds them calling her Mary. These are the Resurrection Crusaders. The one thing I want to point out here is that Zed's hair is immediately much whiter than it was the last time we saw it. Now it's just a black stripe down the middle. Used to be a couple of white stripes at the temples. Yeah, do you think that that's supposed to reflect that she's been through a lot of stress recently, or is that just a... A shift in the way that the artist is drawing her. I think that it's reflective of something that's 
building up with her character that's going to continue into the next few issues. Well, she pulls a knife on these guys. Yeah, they are expecting her to come back with them because time is growing short. And the tongues of fire have ordered them to bring her. Zed says she'll come when she's ready. Yeah, and at this particular moment, Constantine arrives to help her chase them out. And between Zed with a knife and Constantine's presence, they are chased away. Yeah, but she doesn't want to talk about it with him either. Right, she makes it clear that you don't own me. Nobody owns me. Yeah, and he asserts that he's fine with that and and completely on her side. Meanwhile, Nurgle is hanging out with his army. He is playing with a corpse. Specifically, he is working on the corpses of the British boys that he's brought back. Yeah, this is a really cool part. It talks about how he filters the brightest ruby gems of hate, draws out the gorgeous braided ropes of fears, keen talons fillet the small black sacks of bigotry from the drab human clay, squashing a few stunted buds of love. Yeah, it's a it's a pretty cool part as he um as it's described with dark poetry, how he renders the the British boys into this monstrous creature. Nurgle's guerrilla warfare against mankind is rendered more than metaphor as he literally sculpts their worst impulses into his assassin. Right. The problem is that this is another two-page spread with a really weird layout, as we've talked about before. Yeah, once again, it continues all the way across left to right before going back to the left side of the first page. Yeah, and... Well, I guess some of the panels do cross the, the page split... Mm, this so, time that's true. In this particular case, it should have been a little easier to notice, although I can't say I necessarily did. But in this case, it also has a double tall final panel, which, you know, it's a little questionable when you're supposed to read that. Mm. But he assembles the corpses of the four British boys into one monster on which he has written Damnation Army across the chest. Somewhat surprisingly, it's not actually for Constantine. His target is Mary. Yeah, who we know as Zed. He sends this monster that he's made out, and then he he orders his guys, come close and pleasure me. And he is surrounded by a human tide of his followers who wallow over him in slick ecstasy. Right. We, we've got a an interesting piece of language here as he gives us the title of the issue recalling a former spy of some kind that he tortured in hell once called Sunderland Uh, I looked it up but I couldn't find if Sunderland is meant to be a real person that we should know but Sunderland had a secret language to disguise his crimes in his world assassination was cosmeticized to kill was to terminate with extreme prejudice in this case the bizarre nomenclature is wonderfully apt And on the next page, we get Constantine and Zed having sex, and it's kind of described in very weirdly parallel terms to what happens with Nurgle and his followers. Right, so Nurgle working over his corpses that he's sculpting into his assassin is contrasted with Constantine's narration. Like scientists, we fall to our experiment, exploring complex tactile formulae, tasting the arcane chemistry of sex. 
Right. In Nurgle's case, it says their pallid digits crawl the wastelands of his hide. And then on the very next page, when Constantine is with Zed, he says, my fingers tread the taut topography of flesh. Yeah, so it's a fairly unsubtle contrast between Nurgle's gross mass orgy and uh, and John and Zed's more tender affair. Yeah, I, I don't think that, yeah, I agree. I don't think that... I don't think that John and Zed's encounter is meant is meant to be seen as disturbing. No, I, I don't think so at all. John Ridgway has trouble drawing anything in a way without making it look disturbing. But... <laughs> well, they are cast in shadow because they are in the dark. Well, there's that, and there's just the way that the way that Ridgway draws Zed's white hair. Mm. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't look like a. She has kind of big 80s hair. She has almost like Jarrett the Goblin King hair. Right. And I mean, yeah, maybe it's maybe it's just that it's the 80s, but her hair didn't look like, you know, it wasn't like sleek, fashionable white hair to me. It really looks like she's kind of sickly all the time. Oh, I see what you mean. Okay. So on the next page, we find the four-headed, four-armed, no, more like six-armed monster, Iron Fist the Avenger. Yeah, it's got way too many legs, too. Yeah, it does. So yeah, that's that's that callback from earlier of Iron Fist the Avenger. But Iron Fist is a defender. Ah, that's a good point. <laughs> he is also a hero for hire. But what they are doing is neither heroic nor compensated. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, clearly big continuity errors here. And we're told through the narration that the British boys are conscious once again inside Iron Fist the Avenger. And now they're... Now they're united in a way that they couldn't be even as a, a tribe of violent assholes. Now they now they have a flag to march under. They'll never walk alone. The head that's sticking its tongue out kind of looks like Eminem. <laughs> a little. Iron Fist approaches Zed's apartment and finds a car full of Resurrection Crusaders waiting outside. Could we, like, not refer to this monster as Iron Fist? That's just confusing to me. <laughs> the big racist monster. <laughs> yeah, the big racist monster attacks the Resurrection Crusaders who were just at Zed's. Yeah, wrecks their car and kills these three guys. Does it, like... It looks like it picks slams up the car the and slams the top of it into the brick wall. Into the into the brick wall of the, of the bridge that they're on. Right. Meanwhile, Zed's asleep and John is snooping around her place. Yeah, he decides that it is high time for him to find out Zed's secret, which probably means that he meant to snoop around her place a week and a half ago. Right, exactly. (laughs) Such a procrastinator. Some nebulous quality of the night touches John. This is sort of an ability that I don't think I've seen him exercise before, but he apparently can sense the presence of a demon. Yeah, maybe it's just like... I mean, I don't, I don't know if we have to. I don't know if I'm ready to put that in the book as one of Constantine's superpowers just yet. Maybe it's just like a freaky enough, you know, aberration of nature. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this crazy monster that Nurgle made that it would, you know, kind of make anybody's hair stand on end or erect their hair, as <laughs> as Constantine puts it, <laughs> where his mind's at. <laughs> he goes after the monster with a knife but it bursts through the window into zed's bedroom john never even considered that it might not be after him yeah that's right he goes downstairs and it seems to me that he goes downstairs to wait for it by the door but then it comes in the upstairs window 
if I'm reading this correctly. Is that generally the impression that you got? Yeah, I think that's right. He's seen hustling back up the stairs after he realizes it's broken in upstairs. The other thing I want to make note of on this page is that Constantine's narration makes reference to his adventure in the United States and basically acknowledges that it was a massive waste of time. Something wicked this way comes. If I'd been on the ball these last few months instead of charging about in the States, I might have an idea what. <laughs> yeah, so I'm glad that Jamie Delano can acknowledge that we'd all just be better off without that story having happened. <laughs> Speaking of boondoggles, when John sees Iron Fist the Avenger, he loses it and he starts laughing. Yeah, that's right. First he says bloody Nora, <laughs> which I found I mean that's a that's a a British piece of slang I had never encountered before. I found it pretty amusing. But, yeah, so he starts laughing at them, and he points out to, to this monster that it supports two different football clubs. And it's a good thing that he does, because that's basically how how he defeats the, the problem, this issue. Yeah, there's a little bit in the narration telling us that, that these allegiances to their favorite football clubs are tribal allegiances, old and automatic, rooted in the psyche. But I gotta say, this has gotta be John's cheapest win ever, right? <laughs> He just points out that they represent two different football clubs, and the monster just tears itself to pieces. Right. Well, and it's... I, I think Jamie Delano is is making a very self-conscious point about tribal thinking. You know? That the whole football rivalry thing just mirrors the other forms of bigotry that the British boys are so prone to. Hmm. That's an interesting point. I understand that John is supposed to solve his problems with cleverness, but this comes off a little too easy to me. Yeah, I, I mean, it's definitely a bit anticlimactic. Mm -hmm. Great sport, football, eh? John says as he and Zed flee. And Chaz picks them up, taking them to the house of Raymond. Yeah, so Ray is is very nice and quite hospitable towards them, considering that they've arrived in the middle of the night, and he's he's only too happy to help out Zed. But he also has his own problem. It turns out that there are rumors going around that Ray has AIDS, rumors that he confirms are true. Yeah. So Constantine offers his sympathies, and we have a, a panel here of just... Ray is sitting in the chair with his face in his hands, and Constantine is standing over him with a hand on his shoulder, and neither of them, you know, really has any idea what to do. Yeah, that's a nice panel. And I really think we should point out here, too, that this is 1988 or 89, and when I say that Ray has AIDS, it's not bad enough that he has the disease, but he's literally been receiving threats and had to board up his shop because of it. Right, he's he's become a social outcast because people are talking about it. So, yeah, fuck those guys. <laughs> right. Who are, who are doing that to him. John stays up all night thinking about fear and prejudice and its victims about Ray and Zed, the Resurrection Crusade and the Damnation Army, and how to solve this problem. Yeah, he, he makes the explicit point here, which is what the readers have probably been thinking for the last three issues, that clearly the Resurrection Crusaders and the Damnation Army are two sides of the same coin. Right. It's a little ambiguous at this point whether they're supposed to be controlled by the same side, 
but they're definitely related, and they're definitely placed in direct opposition. Right, and as a phenomenon, they kind of arise at the same time. Yeah, and they're really not all that different in their methodology either. Yeah, so Nurgle calls up Constantine and says, next time he won't be so lenient, and Constantine says, curiouser and curiouser. Nurgle points out here, once before you offended me, forcing me to chastise you. Right, yeah, which made me wonder, like, you know, how are we supposed to know Nurgle? But this is indeed his first appearance, so whatever he's referring to, we're not supposed to know the answer yet. Right. Somewhat surprisingly, he invites John to join him in the Army of the Damned. Right, and he doesn't get an answer right away. It looks like Constantine hangs up, and, and that's the end of issue number six. Well, what did you think of that one? I thought this one was pretty good. I liked that Jamie Delano finally paid off the British boys, which he'd established quite a while back. All the way back in issue number one, I think. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, he turned him into a freaky-looking monster, which was, you know, pretty gross and scary, so good for a horror comic. And he also made some points about, you know, prejudice and tribal thinking. Yeah, definitely some very solid, if unsubtle, points. About bigotry. And I like, uh, even though I felt like their defeat was anticlimactic, I like the look of the big scary monster that we get in this issue. And I like that we're starting to actually work the threads of the Resurrection Crusade and the Damnation Army together into a coherent plot. Right. This this was a solid, you know, probably B plus A minus issue that looks like a solid A by contrast with issue five. <laughs> yeah, again, I think the fight was a little short. But that served the story in that we got to see a bunch of plot threads come together. Yeah, and I mean, I don't know. If he had, I don't know, he could have, like, I don't know, come up with some kind of clever distraction and then blown up the building or something. But that wouldn't have had the poetic justice to it of him tricking the the monster into tearing itself apart by playing on its prejudices. Very true. So, next up, issue number seven, Ghosts in the Machine. This one is also written by Jamie Delano with art by John Ridgway, but for the first three pages, it has a different art team of Brett Ewens and Jim McCarthy. Right. This is a very strange scene that we open on. John is at a theater showing an old monster movie on a date with Zed, although Zed, as depicted here, looks nothing like Zed. Yeah, and it's not just the different art style. She's not even drawn with white hair. Right. I wondered about that, and it seems much more likely to me that some kind of deliberate point is being made here than that the fill-in artists just were not made aware of the appearance of a recurring character. Yeah. So we get some poetic narration while John is feeling her up, and it looks like the movie that they're watching keeps changing as well, from a spy film to a monster movie to a Sherlock Holmes movie. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I didn't notice that. John makes his move and begins stripping Zed's clothes off. But he doesn't stop with her clothes. He continues to strip away skin, organs, stripping her down to a skeleton, wearing nothing but a cross around her neck. Yeah, and it looks like she has a zipper, too, that he uses to strip away her flesh. Anyway, there's a panel where she's really, like, gross-looking with her skin halfway off, and we get, like, you know, like, skin and tissue and... And skeleton. And then 
after he's stripped her all the way down to just a bloody skeleton, that looks pretty disgusting as well. And I really didn't see the point of this whole part. And I wondered, based on the different artists, if it was just kind of tacked on to, to get the page count just up. Just needed to fill pages. Yeah. It's pretty horrifying. And as we go to the next page, we learn that this is John having a nightmare, as he often does. And it, it is effective in showing us that John has genuinely horrific nightmares on a regular basis. Yeah. Which is something we already know from our coverage of Sandman. Right. But this doesn't seem to be connected to his past so much as it's connected to his worries about his future and maybe that he's not going to be good for Zed in some way. I I don't really know. Yeah, well, I think there's something symbolic about the idea of him picking away at Zed until there's nothing left, considering that he's not only sleeping with her, but also investigating her secrets without her permission. Yeah, and, and the issue of whether John's sex drive is a bad thing is going to come up again later in this issue. So this is kind of laying groundwork for that, I guess. Right. It doesn't help that I, I read this nightmare sequence in the wrong order again. Ah, yes. <laughs> because they did that, that disguised two-page spread thing that they do again. Yeah, I hate to beat it to death, but it does seem like one or other of us makes that mistake every time they use this layout. Yeah, it's really hard to read. <laughs> John awakens suddenly on a train. Once again, we are reminded that he can't drive. And he's on his way to something called a Weedy Bricks factory. <laughs> Weedy Bricks. Yeah, he is going to meet his old friend, Richie Simpson. Right. Richie is a hacker. I guess in this time period, anyone who knows how to use a computer is a hacker. <laughs> and, <laughs> and his computers are not small at this point. Yeah, that's true. He, he's using the factory's computers, I guess, because they have more power. Yeah, John is sort of curious how he can stand to work at the Weedy Bricks factory, because John apparently has some nostalgic connection to Weedy Bricks that makes it painful for him to be around the smell and the advertising. But Richie puts up with it because he gets access to top-of-the-line computers. He's been using the computers, it turns out, plus a combination of drugs and magic, to enter cyberspace. Yeah, and... The one thing I have to say I love about this issue is the sort of retro-digital representations of cyberspace. Yeah, that was pretty cool, and we get some, some unique artwork as well. Yeah, this art is fantastic. On the next page, there's a two-page spread of Richie going from a very primitive, pixelated model to a much more sophisticated, pixelated model... And then finally we see him in, like, full lifelike detail. Right. So John has hired Richie, sort of, to investigate the Resurrection Crusaders, and specifically the Tongues of Fire, a splinter group that Richie has heard of. They're sort of the high-tech end of the Resurrection Crusaders. I see. I sort of thought they were, like, the inner circle. But in any case, Richie dives into cyberspace, and Constantine leaves him to it, saying, Haha, I don't know how to use computers. Which, again, like, a, a hacker is anyone who can use a computer. John can't even drive a car. And it, apparently, as we're about to find out, he also can't use the coffee machine. <laughs> yeah, John fucks off for a coffee. But we discover that he's not even confident with that level of technology. <laughs> we should say here, it's not a drip coffee maker. It's, uh, it's one of those vending machines that dispenses hot coffee mm -hmm. that he is unable to use. Right. But... You know, we haven't seen him prove that he knows how to use a drip coffee maker either. 
Uh, didn't he make Gary a cup of coffee? <laughs> oh, yeah, I guess he might have in issue number one. Okay, right. so that's the but, one certification on his license. <laughs> but yeah, the, the technology is definitely a little bit dated, but I think it's interesting to note at this point that for a very long time, Constantine aged in real time. His character's about 35 here, and he'll continue to have birthdays and age up to around 60 by the time the Hellblazer series is cancelled. He's going to get to be 60 years old? Something like that. Well, I mean, Hellblazer's running now. There's a Hellblazer Rebirth series. I haven't read very much of it, but he doesn't look 60 years old in it. Yeah, I think I think once they got to either New 52 or Rebirth, and the long-running Hellblazer series ended with, I think, around issue 300, the relaunched Constantine the Hellblazer series is reverting his age somewhat, and he's more living in the DCU now than he was before. Sure. I mean, he interacts with Sandman, as we have seen, and Sandman is able to interact with the Justice League, as we have seen, but he doesn't really seem to share a universe most of the time with Superman and Batman. Anyway, John's ineptitude with computers isn't exactly a conveniently retconned away, because he actually will be... He actually will remain a person who's older than them for quite a number of years after this. Okay, so on the next page... It looks like Zed is hanging out with Ray, and they have a conversation about his past. Right. He's uh, putting her up at his place, and he's being very nice about it, bringing her a cup of cocoa. She uh, actually... Man, we got people drinking coffee, we got people drinking cocoa. This is England. Where's the tea? <laughs> Maybe tea is calming, and they want to be tense. But yeah, so they talk about how Ray has known John for a while, but there was never anything romantic between them. In fact, the love of Ray's life died in the Falklands War. Right. Zed actually asks whether he and John have ever been an item, and Ray replies, Do you think I'd kiss and tell? But then he goes on to explain that he's a monogamous sort of chap. That he had a lover called Sergeant Bill, who served in the Falklands and died. Yeah, how long ago was the the Falklands War at this point? The Falklands War happened in 1982. Oh, so about so about five years ago. Yeah, uh, at the time that this was published. Yeah, quite um, relevant still. Yeah, but still, that's more than what most people would call monogamous. The fact that you know his his lover died, so he decided that he was never going to date anyone else f- for the rest of his life. Yeah, that's true. And then they start they start talking about AIDS. As we mentioned in the previous issue, we found out about Ray's HIV status. He says, AIDS, love, don't be afraid to speak its name. That's what they want people to do. Push it back into the closet with all the queers and junkies. Yeah, he says, they'll only wake up when the straights start dying. Then it'll be too bloody late. So, once again, Jamie Delano is, is getting topical. And you can tell that this is an issue he feels really strongly about. That... You know, the world needs to take action on this disease and not wait for it to become an epidemic in the straight population. Right. And that it's only because it's it's limited to... Marginal populations. Right. It's, it's limited to socially, or mostly limited to socially maligned groups at this point, And that's why nobody in authority seems to care. Yeah. Just then, the Resurrection Crusaders attack. Yes, they do. Ray tries to stand up to them, and Zed tells him not to get involved. And that's when Creepy Glasses leader guy says, Do you think a man does not recognize his own daughter? Yeah. Nice plot reveal there. 
it turns out that the creepy glasses guy is Zed's father. Yeah, and she, seeing that, you know, she and Ray are overmatched by these three Resurrection Crusaders, offers to come quietly, but raging homophobes that they are, they decide they have to beat Ray anyway. Yeah. Again, a really ugly and really topical scene. Yeah, Jamie Delano is is not shying away from how harsh life in England at this time can be for the, the gay community. Right. We get kind of an ironic cut here back to John at the factory beating up the vending machine. Ten minutes and two quid's worth of loose change later, I still haven't got a cup of hot coffee. Just the satisfaction of knowing the thing will never work again. <laughs> yeah, because he's kicked the crap out of it. And he says, machines, you either understand them or you hate them. John heads back to the computer room where Richie is breaking into the Tongues of Fire network. But he's got to go slowly. It's booby-trapped. Yeah, and at this point, he's he's speaking to John from the computer speakers, not with his own lips. Amazing. You said that without moving your lips, John says. And here we get, actually, it's going to be a total of, like, four glorious pages of Richie in cyberspace. And yeah. while he's there looking for information on the Resurrection Crusaders, he also drops a couple of hints about whatever happened in Newcastle. Right. We all went a bit crazy after Newcastle. He complains for a while that John's not appreciative of the difficulty of what he has to do here, and and that John only doesn't care about the internet and cyberspace and using drugs and mysticism to beam your consciousness interesting places because there's no interesting sex in it. Right. Richie's burning himself out on a crazy trip here, uh, but the problem is Constantine's sex drive. <laughs> <laughs> That's an interesting point, but he does make the explicit connection here that they all kind of receded into their own vices after Newcastle. We saw what happened with Gary Lester back in issue number one, and John's libido is apparently his sin of choice. Yeah, the way that they talk about it doesn't really match up with what we've actually seen in the book so far. You think so? You know, I mean, has he had a partner other than Zed? No, it's true, and he's actually monogamously interested in Zed at this point. Right, and and not only that, but they also didn't even hook up the first time they met. I mean, maybe they were about to, but then they went to rescue Gemma instead, which, you know, if he had enough of a problem with sex that he put off rescuing Gemma until after, <laughs> that would be a little bit more of a sign that he has some crippling sex addiction. Yeah. But this is, again, a really cool layout as the ghost of Richie is sort of floating over these vast circuit boards flowing with energy. Yeah, it looks amazing. And Richie tells us that it's amazing, too. It's the trip of his life. But it's interspersed with panels of John standing over him concerned and realizes that he's he's burning up. He either gets too deep in it or he hits some kind of defense mechanism that the tongues of fire have set up. And he ends up spread thin over the internet. Right, and just as Constantine manages to grab the fire extinguisher, Richie's body goes up with a voomph in flames. It's too hot for the extinguisher, Constantine says. Can't even get near. SHC, spontaneous human combustion. There have been some cases in the Fortean times. Last time I saw it was in Baron Winter's house. 
So, did you happen to find out what the Fortean Times was? Do you know what that is? So, I looked up the Fortean Times, and it is a magazine, a UK-based magazine that documents paranormal occurrences. Okay. Is it like a tabloid or more of a respectable publication? I mean, it's about paranormal occurrences, Sean. <laughs> I'm assuming it's fairly marginal. Okay. I did look up Baron Winters. He is a sorcerer. He is the leader of Night Force. He's one of the good guy sorcerers of the DC Universe. He was created by Marv Wolfman and Gene Colan and first appeared in New Teen Titans number 21 in 1982. Nice. So he's not a real person. Like uh, the Fortean Times is real, right? But, but he's not—he's not real. He's from the DC universe. Yeah. So a minute ago, when I said that he didn't live in the same universe as Batman, he does know a sorcerer who hangs out with the Teen Titans. My bad. <laughs> <laughs> so Richie's body is basically reduced to a charred skeleton, but to John's surprise, his voice starts coming out of the speakers again. He's still alive inside the computer. Right. He excitedly recounts his discovery of a new universe, as well as his finding of the Tongues of Flame, while John basically bemoans his own bad luck and tries to figure out how to stop him from coming back into his body, which he obviously won't be able to do because it's dead. Columbus only discovered a new world. Richie Simpson found a whole new universe. I like that line. He does have some useful information for John. It turns out the Tongues of Fire are in Glastonbury, and they've got with them some kind of primal energy source. That's the thing that basically did this to Richie when he made contact with it through the computer. Right, although Richie still does not yet know what has happened to him. Yeah, he knows he had the trip of his life, and he didn't really know what happened to his body. And John is really hesitant to tell Richie that his body has turned into toast. Yeah. He's not going to be able to claim it off his insurance, is he? Right. So instead, he removes the connection between the computer and Richie and then unplugs the computer. In effect, euthanizing Richie without ever telling him what's wrong. I gotta say, that felt unnecessary to me. A little, a little, I don't want to say ignorant, because it's not something that Constantine should be expected to have any knowledge of. But it seemed to me it's very possible that Richie's spirit or soul, what have you, could live indefinitely inside the computer system yeah and as a matter of fact i don't see why he couldn't still be alive in the internet or on the hard drive of the computer that constantine has just unplugged i mean it's not like you unplug a computer and every bit of information on it is erased yeah that's a good point if he's actually been converted to data then he could still be surviving there but constantine concludes very quickly that what's happened to richie is essentially that he's dead and puts an end to it in his way yeah, I wonder if it's just that we have a different perspective on technology than the writer and the average reader would have at this time. But it seemed really unnecessary to me as well. It also seemed really shitty to me of Constantine that he just basically made this decision for Richie without ever telling him what was wrong. And the whole time he's muttering about his own bad luck, that everything he touches turns to shit, you know? Yeah, he's somewhat selfish in the way that he very quickly concludes that that this is another person that he's killed, even as he kills them. (laughs) Right. So, he gets on the train, and while he's on his ride, either back to London or to Glastonbury, he thinks about how Richie was the last of the Newcastle team. And now John is the last. It's been ten years since Newcastle, and he remembers the rest of the group. Benjamin... Gary Lester, 
And as he remembers him, the ghosts appear. Yeah. He thinks that they're here to represent his conscience and tell him what a piece of shit he is. But actually, they say they want to help. And the way that they're going to help is by telling him to keep it in his pants. This is Emma, who was killed by the Invunch in the pages of Swamp Thing shortly before Constantine's first issue of his solo series. And she points out, The big part of the problem, buddy, is that you're too interested in satisfying your sexual appetites. You're just a dirty old man and you're going to screw up because of it. And we also saw Emma previously during the Hunger story arc. We saw her ghost. The ghost of Emma, right. Yeah. So instead of listening to them, he decides he'd rather throw himself off the train. (laughs) (laughs) He sure does. Silly, John. Very silly. I've got to get some air. (laughs) This is sensed some ways away by Zed. She is in an operating room in Resurrection Crusader headquarters. Yeah, and she, uh, she makes a conscious effort to send him her strength, which... I don't know how literal that is, if it's just, like, thoughts and prayers, or if this is actually something she has the magical ability to do. But in either case, it's clear that she has some kind of plan, and she needs Constantine for it to work. Right. She needs him. Needs a friend to help her cheat her destiny. Meanwhile, the Resurrection Crusaders discuss her lack of virginity, but say that their plan will work anyway. Right. It's apparently a problem for them that Zed lost her virginity to John, but not an insurmountable problem. Mental alignment, they say, is more important, and they're going to start intensive re-education in Glastonbury. Right, so it looks like everybody is heading to the same place, and we're queued up for a big confrontation. Everybody except John, because he jumped off the train. Oh yeah, that's right. He's headed for the hospital. (laughs) He might get to Glastonbury in three to five weeks. Next, intensive care. So yeah, that'll have to wait for our next episode of Hellblazer coverage. For now, let's talk about this pair of issues and where we fell on them. Well, again, I thought we got some solid plot development, some dramatic reveals moving toward what looks like an interesting story arc. And again, I thought that the layouts and the art in the cyberspace sequence were really cool. It's it's 1988, and now we've seen hundreds of people go into cyberspace, but... They did a pretty good job here, and and I assume it was a pretty original idea at the time. Well, so, like, I I, I don't know. It's always confusing for me, like, when I see this kind of, like, retro takes on hacking, you Mm -hmm. know, like, talk of hackers in the 80s and stuff. Yeah. But I will say that this comic book already comes out several years, I think more than a half decade after the movie War Games, which was all about a hacker. Yeah, um, that's true. And, and War Games was somewhat a somewhat more realistic view of hacking in that there was no there was no cyberspace goofiness and the main hacking tool that he actually had was researching someone to steal their password. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, the, the art in this issue was really good. The art in both of these two issues was really good. We got some great trippy stuff. We also got some really good horrific stuff. Just about the only thing in this pair of issues that John Ridgway is not good at drawing is Zed. Mm. You know, he, he draws her. She's supposed to be a beautiful young woman, and he draws her looking like a sickly old crone <laughs> with her shock of white hair. Right. But, and, and you know who draws her even worse? <laughs> Brett Ewens and Jim McCarthy? <laughs> yeah, because they don't even know that she has white hair. 
in any case, it's good to see Constantine getting back on the right track after his uh, ill-fated adventure in the U.S., and and good to see the, the plot moving forward. Yeah, and again, I think the cyberspace thing is a cliche now, but it is cool to see magic being used to do some different interesting things. It's not, you know, D&D magic where there are demons and they throw fireballs at them. It's being used here in an interesting way to gather information. Yeah, and and we're doing... They're doing a good job of showing us that Constantine thinks quickly on his feet. Yeah. Even if, you know, it, even if it didn't play out quite as well as it could have with the whole Richie thing. I think that was supposed to be an example of John thinking quickly on his feet when he cut the connection and then unplugged the computer. But, you know, to us it just kind of seemed pointless. Oh, yeah, he definitely thought quickly. Maybe a little too quickly for our taste. <laughs> right, and and he didn't come up with a, with a solution to the problem, per se. Right. It's interesting, too, to think that John has a bunch of friends in different places that have different angles on magic, different favorite kinds of mysticism. Yeah, he, his, his roster of friends runs pretty deep and are always a good source of drama. Yeah. Well, if that wraps up Hellblazer issues 6 and 7, then I would say now it's time for a little segment I like to call, Hey Sean, Read This. Oh uh, boy. And this week, Sean's going to be reading Day Tripper, issue number one, by Fabio Moon and Gabriel Ba. This came out a handful of years ago, back in 2010, I believe. So, we'll be right back. Okay. All right, we're back, and Sean has just read the somewhat more recent Vertigo comic, Day Tripper, issue number one, by Fabio Moon and Gabriel Ba. Sean, what did you think? Well, I thought that was pretty interesting. This is a very kind of a low-key drama, kind of a story that we don't see a lot in comics. We've got this guy, Prosta uh, Oliva Domingo, I think. Something like that. Apologies for the pronunciation of that name. But he's a writer. He writes obituaries. And he's sort of worried that he's not writing about life. He's writing about death. He's also working on a book. And he's got various family members who are a little less supportive than he'd like them to. But, I mean, it's really interesting to see a comic book where the most overt conflict is that he's not sure he wants to go to a celebration of his dad's work. <laughs> well, yeah, that's not the most overt conflict, because there's a dude with a gun <laughs> who, who shows up in the last couple of pages. Okay, okay. So so you did spoil a bit of a detail about this series for me. Yes. As I mentioned to Sean previous to him reading it, every issue of Day Tripper ends with Bross's death. And... They always end with us getting a little obituary of what his life was like and how it would have been commemorated if it had come to an end at that precise moment. Right. But these deaths are not canon. The next issue is going to pick up as if he was not shot. Well, so the issues jump around in time. So the next issue takes place earlier. Oh, I see. I see. So you, you can't tell immediately that it's as if he hasn't been shot. But there are issues that take place after issue number one. And, and yes, it's as if he wasn't shot. Yeah, so, I mean, that's kind of an interesting device to to catch the attention, certainly. Well, and it's appropriate because he writes obituaries. Exactly. Yeah, I, I think that this first issue does a good job of introducing 
a lot of the big themes and relationships of the series. You know, he has a complicated relationship with his father. He has a complicated relationship with his work, with his creative passions and the the quest for inspiration. He also has a complicated relationship with his best friend. Mm -hmm. Yeah, is it... Do you know to what extent it may be somewhat autobiographical? Well, I mean, so... Brazil plays a big part in this comic book, and the the two writers are twin brothers from Brazil. Mm-hmm. And obviously, like, you know, the stuff about, like, inspiration and writer's block and that kind of thing, I'm sure is, is very close to them. But apart from that, I don't really know how much, if any, of what happens to Brass is autobiographical. Okay. I mean, I, I kind of hate to level that word. Some might think of it as a dirty word. <laughs> autobiographical? Yeah. But, but, yeah, I was just curious about that. I, I'm, I'm curious to see where it goes from here. I think it's an interesting book and, and well worth a look. I, I thought the art was really impressive. Uh, lovely use of color and light to establish mood and scene. I think every scene that Ross goes through in his day, as depicted in this comic, has a distinctive color scheme. Right, yeah. I, I think the art is gorgeous as well. It's It might be described as a little bit sketchier than, than what I normally like in comic book art, but it's very expressive. It's detailed when it needs to be. Characters' faces are rendered very well. They mm-hmm. have individuality and they have emotion. Yeah, and, and as well, it has the tendency to sort of cut away into a different newspaper photo kind of style when it's doing the obituaries. Oh, I hadn't noticed that, but yeah, that is, that's really cool. So, do you think you'll read more of Day Tripper? I'd be interested in checking it out. All right. So, um, that was our coverage of Hellblazer issues 6 and 7 and Day Tripper number 1, all from Vertigo Comics. We will find out what happens to John Constantine and the Damnation Army. But first, join us next week when Preacher and his crew hit the Big Apple and tangle with New York's finest. Yep, it's Preacher issues 5 through 7. Say a prayer for seven bullets. Hey, if you like our show, stop by vertiguys.blueberry.com. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. We've got a lot more episodes, plus show notes and links for every episode. Yep. We're also available at vertiguys at gmail.com and at vertiguys on Twitter. Thanks for listening.